This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty. Hi, I'm David and I'm the climate change editor at The Straits Times. It is the 17th of March. Extreme weather events seem to always be in the news these days, most recently with the floods in Malaysia and Australia. A recent report by the United Nations' top climate science body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, concluded that climate change impacts are intensifying, driving humanitarian crises, and the need to adapt is becoming increasingly urgent. With us today is one of the lead authors of the IPCC report, Dr. Chatney Singh, Senior Research Consultant at the Indian Institute for Human Settlements in Bangalore, to tell us more about the report and its key findings. Welcome to the show, Chatney. It's really nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Chatney, you were the author of a section focused on Asia. Can you tell us some of the headline conclusions of the report and why they are so important, especially for Asia? Absolutely. So I was a lead author for the regional chapter on Asia, which is chapter 10 of this new IPCC report. Of course, we know from previous reports and other non-IPCC related research that's being done that uh, Asia as a whole is highly exposed to climate change impacts from too much water, things like uh, floods, coastal flooding, inland flooding, extreme rainfall, but also issues of too little water, so droughts and water scarcity. These are some of the climate impacts that we already know about. What this report is different in uh, saying is that, first of all, we know with great certainty that these impacts are going to be very high for Asia, Uh, Different parts of Asia, of course, are going to be differentially exposed to them. The number of countries that we have within the chapter are 51 countries and we divide them by sub-regions. So things like North Asia, East Asia, West, South, Southeast and so on. And we really show that there are, first of all, large data gaps in certain parts of Asia. So especially Central Asia, for example, or even West Asia. And uh, But despite these uh, knowledge gaps, there's very clear evidence to show that all over there are climate impacts that are increasing. The second big finding, I think, on the risk and impact side is that many of these risks are going to happen simultaneously. So this idea of compounding events where you're going to have, for example, coastal cities that are facing very heavy uh, rainfall, perhaps cyclones and storm surges, but then also simultaneously facing extreme heat And we, as cities, as countries, I think this idea of compounding events and how to deal with them is less understood and less uh, implemented, really. So that's uh, another key finding from the report. And then an overall message that we try to talk of is this idea of uh, the solution space. So really thinking about what are the different adaptation options, adaptation strategies we have to deal with this increasing risk. And the headline statement there is that we do already see a lot of adaptation progress across Asia. I think, again, it's differentiated. Not all countries and places are adapting equally. But Asia has some really good examples of long-term adaptation planning. A classic example is the Bangladesh uh, Delta Plan up to 2100 where they're really putting in long-term plans for managing sea level rise and other associated impacts. But while we are seeing a lot of progress around Asia on adaptation, 
there's less evidence of adaptation implementation. So we have a lot of plans, but then are they really moving into action and implementation? That's where there is quite a big gap. And an associated problem is that whatever adaptation is happening, uh, some of it is actually having maladaptive consequences. And we can go into that in a bit more detail later. But these are some of the big, broad findings, I guess, from the Asia chapter. So, Chandni, climate change is no longer just about rising temperatures and sea levels, as the report makes clear. Could you give us some more specific examples of how climate change is affecting societies and the risks if greenhouse gas emissions are not cut dramatically enough over the next few decades? So we had an IPCC report last year that came out in August last year that was called the Code Red Report, which is the working group one report of the IPCC, which lays out the physical science basis of climate change. And there, of course, very clearly we showed that all these things that you mentioned, there is going to be increasing sea level rise, uh, more frequent heat waves, uh, longer drought periods, and also water scarcity for certain places. But this report, which is the working group two report, really focuses on what does that changing climate mean both for natural and human systems. So what are the risks and impacts that we are going to see in our uh, societies really? And that's where we talk about uh, examples of increasing water scarcity leading to negative impacts on crop yields and agriculture, which then, then can perhaps have second order impacts on food prices or even third order impacts on people leaving agriculture and then choosing to migrate out of perhaps rural areas to urban areas to find jobs. Uh, This is just one example. Of course, there are other examples related to other livelihoods that are dependent on natural resources, coastal livelihoods such as fisheries and how they can be impacted by changing ocean temperatures and then, you know, second order impacts on fish populations and their breeding and availability. So there are a range of examples like this. I was also involved in uh, what was called a cross-chapter paper on cities and settlements by the sea. I mean, there's been a huge shift towards talking and trying to understand how climate change is impacting cities and very unequal populations within cities. So I'd just like to highlight some of those findings as well, where we say things like flooding within cities, too much water falling in short periods of time, or extreme heat in cities are going to intersect with non-climatic issues such as just bad urbanization, reducing green cover. And these are going to sim- they're going to come together to really impact the most vulnerable. And who are the most vulnerable in a city? It is people living in informal settlements, low-income groups, people in very precarious livelihoods, such as those who are street vendors or who have to work as construction laborers, for example. Uh, what's important to take away from this, I guess, is that there is, of course, a changing climate that we're operating within. But there are non-climatic factors which are under our control. And these come together really to shape which places as well as who, which people are really being uh, exposed to climate change. Now, of course, it's, it's not just people uh, affected. Of course, it's nature. And nature is, of course, quite crucial uh, in providing services for humanity. So, you know, on top of the environmental damage caused by mankind, um, you know, nature is suffering quite substantially. We do have very clear evidence with increasing levels of confidence, which means that we just have both the amount of uh, research that's done to link climate change and its impacts on natural systems has increased, but also the agreement within that literature has also increased. By that, I mean that uh, there are fewer papers contradicting each other and we have a much clearer sense of just the devastating impacts of climate change on natural systems. 
I think an example that gets talked about a lot and is also relevant for uh, several Asian countries is just marine ecosystems, coral reefs, and all the services really that they provide and all the species that depend on them uh, are going to be seeing extreme impacts at lower degrees of warming. So we currently are at global average warming levels of 1.1 degrees Celsius. And even at this stage, coral reefs, for example, are seeing a lot of impacts. At 1.5 degrees, they are going to see extreme dying out of corals. And then at 2 degrees, actually, uh, 99% of coral reefs will die out. At least those are the projections and the numbers that we have. Also, it's important to understand that when there are these impacts on natural systems, think about mangrove ecosystems, and uh, ocean temperatures rising, fish stocks, as well as trees and just uh, green cover, or even crops, so our food crops. All of those, of course, as we know, human beings are dependent on natural systems for so many things, not only for food and livelihoods, but also there are cultural services that you get from them, aesthetic services. The damages done to particular services, uh, uh, particular ecosystem services that are less tangible, I guess. So coming to ecosystem services that nature provides, while there are tangible services that we have, there are also several intangible services that nature provides, aesthetic services, cultural services, just place attachment to a particular kind of uh, habitat. And I feel those are less quantified. They are just because they're less visible and it's difficult to monitor them. Uh, But the report also shows that we are seeing losses that are intangible as well. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Actually, I was hoping you could talk a bit more about vulnerability. You did mention that not everyone has the same vulnerability to climate impacts. And the report did highlight how adaptation strategies can actually help to reduce some of this vulnerability. Vulnerability is basically this idea that there are certain people who are unable to have the capacities to have the assets or agency and voice to be able to adapt. And there are reasons for this that lie in the way our social and natural systems are functioning. In this report, as in other IPCC reports from this working group, uh, we have discussed how certain population groups and certain places are just more vulnerable based on their histories, based on their social structures. And uh, to give you an example of this differential vulnerability, just imagine a heat wave in a large city. While the the hazard of having a very hot day, a set of hot days, is beating down on every resident, there are some people who maybe because of their ethnicity, perhaps because of their gender, because of their income levels, they are set in certain, they, they only have certain kinds of livelihoods that they can work in. And that means that they have only a certain amount of income. When you have a hot day, and these people are typically also people who are living in low income informal settlements. People like you and me have the luxury of not having to work in very hot hours, but some livelihoods, there, there is no option to do that. So that really is this, this idea of differential vulnerability where certain people just don't have the choice available to them because of certain past structures um, to, to choose to adapt or not or have the income, the means to really adapt or not. We also show and use the word colonialism as a driver of vulnerability for the first time, actually, uh, in the IPCC summary for policymakers, which is 
the shorter document that summarizes this big 3,600-page document. This really, again, highlights this idea that certain countries who are facing the brunt of uh, climate change have in the past, I mean, faced certain models of extraction that don't allow them to uh, adapt the way other countries can, that ha don't have this colonial history. And we have a lot of examples uh, from Africa, from South America, from Asia, and notably from South Asia, where I'm most familiar with the context. So we have a lot of examples to do that. So I think it's been, personally, I feel quite a, quite an important moment in the climate space that colonialism has found mention like this. Of course, we know from a lot of work by critical geographers that colonialism and climate change pathways to adapt really are linked. But for the first time, the IPCC talks about it in such a prominent way. So as I said earlier, Asia has shown a lot of progress in adaptation. And uh, some countries in Asia in particular are front runners in adaptation, I would say. Japan, for example, has a long history of uh, disaster uh, risk management and has used some of those lessons into building its own adaptation plans. We also see that a lot of Asian countries and cities have examples such as uh, using hard infrastructure options to deal with climate risks. For example, building seawalls to deal with rising sea levels or changing their building structures to make them more cool. So there are such infrastructural examples. There are also a lot of examples now increasingly of what we call nature-based solutions or ecosystem-based adaptation. This is really the idea that you can use natural solutions, use urban greenery, for example, to reduce heat, heat risk. Uh, another example of nature-based solutions is mangrove restoration or protection of mangroves to use them to uh, buffer against flooding and storm surges. Notably, I think in Asian cities, and especially in East and Southeast Asia, a lot of examples of dealing with extreme rainfall and flooding that is, even without climate change, I think a significant issue. But what I do want to say is that most of the adaptation that we at least review in this, in the chapter on Asia shows that a lot of it is still very reactive. So it tends to think about events after they've happened as well as reactive in the sense that they are only looking at current impacts and not really proactively thinking about how these impacts are going to change in the future. So while we might be adapting to floods that happen today, the, the adaptation plans that we were looking at, we didn't find evidence of uh, how people or how cities and governments are thinking about adapting to changing climate in the future. There are, of course, some outliers, but uh, the the overall, the average norm, I guess, is that uh, adaptation is reactive. The other big gap that we see is that adaptation is also focused on single risks. And I spoke about that earlier, that this idea of compounding risk, multiple things are going to come simultaneously. Those kinds of things are, don't find mention in the adaptation plans that we assessed. So I think there's a lot more. There's, there's obviously a lot going on, and that is acknowledged in the report, but there's a long way to go. And just to add, there's one more idea that we talk about in the report, which is around cascading risk. So what happens in one sector might not only stay in that sector and cascade out to others just because our systems are so deeply connected or cascading risks in the form of what happens in one place, for example, a drought in a rural area 
might cascade out to food systems in urban areas because they are reliant on these rural areas for their food supply. So this cascading risk between places and with, between sectors is something, again, that we don't find evidence on adaptation for. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how, how these headline statements or key findings are picked up and then really maybe used to inform further adaptation. That's great. That's a really good summation. Clearly, there's more that needs to be done. But are there limits to adapting to climate change? Some areas are already becoming, I think, just too risky to live in, such as floodplains or areas that have become just too fire-prone, too many uh, fires occurring in, in a very short space of time. Yes. So this idea of limits to adaptation, I think we've already had it in previous IPCC reports, but now we have a lot more evidence on what these limits will look like. We have evidence on uh, particular systems already hitting limits. So when we talk of adaptation limits, uh, there are two kinds of limits we speak about. One is soft limits and hard limits. So a hard limit is really, as, as you can imagine, it's a limit beyond which you can't adapt. And again, a classic example that we take is this idea of wet bulb temperatures of 35 degrees and human beings not being able to survive beyond that. Now, what do I mean by wet bulb temperatures? You know, on our phones or if you see the weather forecast, you get a get a number that tells you about what the temperature is, maybe a maximum and minimum. And that really captures how hot it's going to be outside. But a wet bulb temperature captures how hot and humid it's going to be. So it, it captures two indicators. And these wet bulb temperatures, so what the medical science shows us is that when you hit a wet bulb temperature of 35 degrees, even a healthy human being who has no other ailments and is sitting under the shade will not survive more than six hours. So it's really just the limits of human physiology. That is an example of a hard limit. You can't survive beyond 35 degrees wet bulb temperatures. Now, a soft limit, on the other hand, is this idea that we might not have adaptation strategies today for a particular risk, and that's why it feels like a limit. But perhaps in the future, based on our technology, just some innovations that come up, we are able to adapt to it in the future. So it presents a kind of limit right now. That's why it's soft. But in the future, depending on where we go, either it will get removed or if the risk increases, it might become a hard limit. So coming to soft limits, if we continue to take the example of extreme heat, a soft limit is really this idea that while we may have certain limits adapting to a risk today, uh, that limit might go away in the future based on whether there's a new invention, we just change our technologies and we find a way to adapt to that particular risk. A soft limit also denotes that you can have strategies today to adapt, but they might not be available to all. So... Again, to illustrate this idea of a soft limit, currently we already are seeing extreme heat and what we call urban heat island effects. So just a lot of heat trapped in our cities. Certain people can cool their spaces or stay indoors and not be exposed to that heat. And for them, this extreme heat does not pose a limit. Whereas for certain people who aren't able to afford cooling devices, who have to move out at certain times of the day or work in the sun, there is a limit to how much they can adapt just because their practices and their livelihoods require them to be exposed to heat. So that's an example of a soft limit in this case. What we show in the report is that we are seeing, uh, increasingly seeing a shift towards hard limits. 
also seeing a lot of evidence of soft limits. This is a quite a, I, I would say this is a space that's growing quite a bit. So there's a lot of research that needs to be done. But what we can show in this report is even at current warming levels of 1.1 degree global averages, we are hitting certain hard and soft limits. And that is very worrying because that only shows that in the future, we're going to be hitting many more limits for many more systems and sectors, really. So the, the idea of limits is pushing us to recognize that you really need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions today. And, and just finally, as, as a final question, are governments and businesses actually paying enough attention to the need to adapt uh, and become resilient in the face of growing climate risks? Yes, I think that's the big question that we almost end the report on, to say that if we are to think of this, this, this whole report and the previous one before it, we know that we are facing the challenge of our lifetimes, of a really big challenge for the human species as a whole and so many other species that are going to be impacted. And what do we do about it? Where do we move towards? And we talk about this idea of climate resilient development, where we say that we need to bring adaptation, mitigation and sustainable development together to really think about possible futures that can be climate resilient and allow equitable development. Now, coming back to what you asked about political will, I think there is political recognition, I would say, of the problem more in some countries than others. But is that recognition or acknowledgement really matched by political action and ambition? Perhaps not. There are some countries, of course, that are making large pledges about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, putting in ambitious uh, adaptation and resilience building plans. And that's promising to see. We do assess them. But we do also note that in spite of all this rhetoric around climate action, the gap between stated goals and actual implementation remains. And that gap is driven by inadequate political will in some cases. Uh, so I would say that it's mixed. Some countries doing better than others. Thank you so much, Johnny, for your time. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was really nice speaking to you. Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in The Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.